Amen. Hindsight is always 2020, isn't it? You've heard the expression before. Hindsight is always 2020. When it comes to the Bible, we have the advantage of being on the other side of the story, don't we? We know what actually happened, what took place. Uh, and we can see, hopefully, how the Old Testament and the story of Jesus in the New Testament are absolutely related. They are the same story. They are the continuing story. But as I've said before, sometimes we miss the clues. We miss the clues or haven't realized that the story of the Old Testament and the story of the New Testament are actually one story. They're one story. And as we've been looking at Exodus this past uh, several weeks, I've tried to give you the, the missing pieces that will hopefully help you uh, connect the two together, the old and the new. Uh, any of you old enough to remember Paul Harvey? Any of you? Yeah, some of you. You remember Paul Harvey. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Paul Harvey was, he used to have a radio show in which uh, consisted of stories presented as, as little-known or forgotten facts on a variety of subjects with some key element of the story left out, usually the name of the person, uh, held back until the end. And then at the end, he would re reveal that key element and what he, would he say? And now you know the rest of the story. So, for your listening enjoyment this morning, we're going to go back in time a little bit and hear Paul Harvey, one of his stories, so that you can understand even better what I mean. Now, the rest of the story. It was midnight, almost precisely midnight, when the little girl rushed into her parents' room, shook her father awake, he, the vicar of Epworth, rubbing his eyes, asked what was the matter. The distraught child answered in gasping, fragmented phrases that sparks and cinders were showering down from the ceiling over her bed. Indeed, the rectory was on fire. The vicar gathered his wife, the rest of his children as quickly as he could, hurried him down the blazing staircase out into the yard. Only then did he realize that one small son was missing. The vicar bounded back into the rectory, but the fiery staircase collapsed under him. Barely escaping the conflagration, he staggered outside once more. And there he fell to his knees, praying that the little boy's death would at least come swiftly. But then somebody in the swelling crowd of onlookers spotted the child in a second-story window. So one man stood on the shoulders of another man and reached upward and pulled the vicar's son to safety just as the roof collapsed in flames. By the first light of morning, the fire was out. The rectory lay in smoking ruin. The vicar shuffled among the ashes of what had been his home and his earthly belongings, realizing sadly the cause of what had happened. An accident? Of course not. No, no. You see, the vicar had angered many of his parishioners by condemning their failings from the pulpit and by sympathizing with an unpopular candidate in a recent election. In any case, threats had been made, followed by some violence to the vicar's livestock and even to his pet dog. So the fire this night passed was surely perpetrated by local enemies the question remained, where was the vicar to go from here? And he asked himself this. In fact, his foot kicked something solid in the sooty debris, the scorched remnants of his treasured Bible. 
He picked it up, and he tenderly opened it. Only one verse was legible on the page before him, and there in the breaking dawn he whispered those words, Go, sell all that thou hast, take up thy cross, and follow me. Well, in that instant, the vicar of Epworth decided what he must do. He must rebuild his home, and if thugs burned it again, he must rebuild it again, but he must never allow those who hated him to drive him from those who needed him, and he never did. Even though his trials were far from over, even though the following year he was imprisoned for debt, the vicar of Epworth maintained his devotion to all in need and his fierce optimism, and yes, even his sense of humor. The vicar's children grew up, honoring his remarkable example, especially the little boy narrowly snatched from the flames, February 9 of 1709. For more than two and a half centuries, the world has recognized and revered the man that boy became, Vicar Samuel Wesley's son. He was the father of Methodism, John Wesley. And one thing more, all of his adult life, John Wesley cryptically called himself a brand plucked from the burning. So many people never knew what he meant by that. You do, because now you know the rest of the story. It's fun to hear you say that at the end. Now you know the rest. How many of you knew that about John Wesley, that he was in a, a fire? Some of you did, yes. Uh, it, it affected his life. It affected his parents' lives. And in fact, his mom uh, prayed over John, knew that John had a purpose for life, because why else would God have gone to such great lengths to save him from that fire? Now we know the rest of the story. You know, sometimes we're like listeners to Paul Harvey and, and that we haven't heard the rest of the story. But I want us to recognize these key elements that connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. This one story of God's salvation. So this morning I'm going to give you, in a sense, the rest of the story. We're going from Exodus to Exodus. From Exodus in the Old Testament to Exodus in the New Testament. Because this is such an amazing story. It is such a, a mind-blowing story to me. We're, we're getting to the culmination of the story of Exodus. The salvation event in the Old Testament. In, but in reality, the story of the first Exodus, we, we finished up last Sunday. As we looked at the law and the tabernacle, remember when we talked about the purpose of the law and, and what the tabernacle was for. But this morning we're going to try to connect the exodus to this new exodus that we see in the Gospels. And in a minor way, we're going to connect the whole Old Testament story to the story of Jesus. Let me remind you again of this story here uh, in Matthew that we just had read. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for the week of Passover. It is his final week on earth. It's like a Passover in the first century is like going to a religious state fair. Everyone's there. There's vendors or people from all over, all over the nation coming to, to worship and celebrate the Passover together. And the rumors have been flying all over the place about this prophet, 
Jesus, who's from up north in Galilee? Could he be the Messiah? That's the question they're asking. The one who has come to save them. The great prophet. Expectations were high. But expectations are always high around Passover. Kind of like for us, around Christmas, expectations are always high. But even more so for the Jewish people. At Passover, expectations were high because they could remember the Old Testament story of Exodus, God saving them, and they were desiring for God to save them even now because they were not a free people. They were under the rule of Rome. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone to set them free. Remind you of Exodus? They were enslaved and needed someone to set them free. Now they had heard the stories about Jesus, the miracles he performed, the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God, his call to create a new people, a people with transformed hearts, transformed by the Spirit of God. So he was greeted with great expectation with the palm branches as he's coming into Jerusalem, and they throw their cloaks in front of them, uh, and they shout, Hosanna. And this throwing of their garments on the road, it was it's a symbol of submission, uh, like submission to a king. You're going to throw your cloak underneath and the, the king is going to ride over, meaning you are under their authority. And the waving of the branches, of the, of the palm branches, was a symbol of national, nationalism and especially Jewish nationalism, that they were a people and they were, wanted to be a free People And it symbolized their pride as Jews. So here we have these great expectations as Jesus is coming into the city. Expectations are high. But the crowds are fickle, aren't they? On this Sunday they're shouting Hosanna, but by Friday they are shouting crucify him. Why? How can they go from praise to condemnation so quickly? How is that? Part of the problem is that they were tripped up on their own agenda and couldn't see the agenda of God that was right before them. They couldn't see the clues that God had embedded throughout the scripture to show them the rest of the story. They were so focused on their own needs and their own desires, they couldn't see the big picture. Remind you of Exodus? where the the people are set free, and what do they want to do immediately after they're set free? Let's go back to slavery. Let's, Let's do that instead. That we know how to do. We don't know how to do freedom. And we see the incredible miracles in Exodus, the miracles of God through Moses, but they quickly turn away when things get tough and they condemn this prophet Moses sent by God. Their hearts are bad. Their hearts are not transformed. Their hearts are, are hardened. And all throughout the week, Jesus challenges the religious leaders whose hearts are hardened to the reality of God. He condemns them for not truly following the law. Their hearts are bad. Again, we remember Exodus. Pharaoh and even the people of God had hardened hearts. They needed to be saved. They needed to be transformed. They needed to be recreated. 
And on Thursday of that week, Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal. Remember, he goes into the upper room to celebrate the great feast. The main salvation event that the Jews celebrated every year. This is the salvation event they're celebrating. And here Jesus takes the ritual and he recreates it. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, This is my body broken for you. He takes the wine and he shares it with him and he says, This is my blood poured out for you. Remember the confusion of the disciples? They really didn't understand what Jesus meant when he changed the words of the ritual. When he said those words for them for the first time. And on Friday, they couldn't see that he was the Passover lamb. That his blood would be placed not on the doorposts of their house, but on the doorposts of their hearts. Jesus is the new Exodus. He would make a way in the desert when there was no way, when there was no hope. No longer would the people feed themselves on manna from heaven, but they would feast on the bread of life, Jesus. They couldn't see it. They wouldn't see it until they would know the rest of the story after the resurrection. Then it would hit them like a ton of bricks. And what would they do after that? They'd say, we need to go back and reread this and figure out, because we missed these clues. It was here the whole time. How did we miss this? How could we not see? And they were shocked by it. And, and, and the people over and over again, they begin to go back and read the prophets and the Torah and see. The pieces would start falling in place for them. This is the continuation of what God had desired from the very beginning all the way back in Genesis. But we couldn't see because we had our own agendas. But Jesus didn't just fulfill the Exodus. He fulfilled the whole Old Testament. We've been focusing on this one little slice, a very important slice, the Exodus. But throughout the whole story, we see three primary images of what God's design was for Messiah. This way of freedom that God is going to save his people. We see reflections of these three throughout the Old Testament. And we've seen these reflections in Exodus as well. See, the coming Messiah would fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this imagery, this symbolism... These three images of how the Messiah would come back. Some said the Messiah would be a great prophet, like Moses. Others thought that the Messiah would be a, a great high priest, like Levi. And still others thought that the Messiah would be a great king. They didn't imagine that he could be all three. That Jesus is the rest of the story. As prophet, See, the people of Israel constantly looked to the prophets for wisdom. The prophets were supposed to speak for God and speak for the people to God. And they saw in Messiah one who would be the very voice of God. The greatest prophet. 
The one to whom Moses pointed to. Did you know that Moses prophesied that there would be another prophet like him that would come? We read these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. That's what Moses predicted. So the people were looking for a great prophet. Others were looking, and we see throughout Scripture, that they were looking for a priest. Jesus was the great high priest. Remember we talked about the tabernacle last week and about who could enter into the tabernacle. And only the the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. Jesus was the great high priest, the one who had authority to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very tabernacle of God, and he offered the greatest sacrifice for us all. He showed us his authority as high priest when he came into the temple that week of Passover, and he cleansed the temple of the those who were selling and the money changers. And he said, this should be a house of prayer. He showed it as he offered the great and final sacrifice. For the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus was the great high priest. As king. Do you remember back. All the way back in Genesis. You remember when God spoke to Jacob. Who was Jacob? Remember? One of the patriarchs. Remember the story? Creation. Noah. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. Joseph. Jacob, his name was changed to what? Israel. The father of the 12 tribes. God spoke to Jacob and gave him a prophecy about his lineage. That there would be a Messiah, would be a great king. In Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, from his son, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the people is his. This theme of of a great king would expand later when King David came to power. That indeed the Messiah would come from David's lineage. That he will set his people free. That he will ride into Jerusalem as a warrior, destroying God's enemies. In Jesus we see the trinity of these three themes coming together in one person. But here's the rest of the story. The Jews couldn't imagine how Jesus would fulfill these three roles of Messiah. How could a man be both a prophet, a priest, and a king? There's no way, even by the law, how one person could fulfill those three roles. In fact, many believe that God might send several different messiahs. Many Jews thought that there might be several different messiahs, some that would come as a prophet, some as a priest, some as a king. To fulfill these three different roles. But to be fulfilled in one man. Why he'd have to be some kind of God to do that. And indeed he was. In Jesus we see the three coming together as one. So that we will have no mistake in knowing who he really is. In the exodus. The salvation story of the Old Testament. We see the amazing miracles. The Passover. The salvation through the Red Sea. 
the manna from heaven. God dwelling with them in the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. And this was so that the people would truly understand. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This isn't man's doing. This is the very hand of God that has redeemed you, that has saved you. In the new exodus, in Jesus, we see the same thing. The amazing miracles performed by Jesus. The Passover lamb's blood spilled so that death would not come to the people. The sacrifice of love, the dwelling of God with his people in Jesus. Next week, we will celebrate the great fulfillment of that story with Easter. But today, as we finish up, I hope indeed that your hindsight is 2020, that you can see with new eyes the, the incredible love and sacrifice that our God has for us. We serve a God that desires to dwell with us. We serve a God that desires to dwell with us. And he will go to links unimaginable for you to see that love. Now you know the rest of the story. What will you do with it? What, what agenda will you lay down in order to pick up God's agenda? How are you going to see with new eyes the world? How is your heart been transformed? Or do you need a heart transplant? What do you need to stop telling yourself in order to hear God? We're starting Holy Week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I hope that this week, here's, the, here's what's going to happen this week. You're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to forget it's Holy Week. It'll hit you. Some of you, it'll hit you about 11. Some of you, about 10 that night. Some of you, you'll completely forget on Monday. And maybe even on Tuesday. Maybe even on Wednesday. And then you'll get a Facebook reminder about Passover uh, or about communion. Oh, yeah, it's Holy Week. I should go. That's what's going to happen. But here's what I want you to do to fight that. <laughs> it's Holy Week. Here's your next step. Every day. In our Bible reading plan, we're, we're, we're kind of reading some of the gospel accounts, just some of the stuff. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, just grab it or, 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 or read part of the, the gospels. Just that last week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can read about those last weeks. Just spend time reading about this last week before Jesus is resurrected. Spend time reflecting and praying about it. Asking God, how, God, how can my heart be transformed? Maybe just put a sticky note on your mirror with a heart on it. How can my heart be transformed? How can I follow your agenda, God, and not mine? That's your next step this week. Do whatever it takes to remind yourself every day, this is Holy Week and Easter's coming. Let us pray.